Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. A couple of years ago, I came across a video called Talking Funny, and it had four of my favorite comedians. It had uh, Jerry Seinfeld, Chris Rock, Louis C.K., and Ricky Gervais. And it was an HBO special. They just sat around in a room and just talked about comedy. They talked about the stuff they were doing, the stuff they were working on, things that they thought were funny, and, and it was just a really great piece. I have people that are kind of my heroes, people that I look up to, people that I think are doing some spectacular work today in the field of, of building strong towns and kind of related kind of work. Uh, among them, primarily, I mean, the, the, the three guys that I have gained a, a ton of inspiration from, Jason Roberts with the whole Better Block project and everything that he's done. Mike Lydon with the Street Plans Collaborative and his work with the tactical urbanism and just pioneering in that field. And then, of course, Joe Minicosi, my good friend, uh, with the value per acre analysis and, and everything he's done to illuminate the fiscal condition of cities and land use patterns. I had this idea that I would love to just kind of for my own benefit, for my, you know, sometimes you, you like to do things just for yourself, for fun. Wouldn't it be great, just like a dream, to sit down in a room with these three guys and just be able to chat for an hour or so about cities and, and related issues. We were all going to be in the same place for CNU this last year at Buffalo. And I asked them, Hey, would you guys be willing to do this? I sent them the talking funny video clip on YouTube and they all got back to me and said, wow, this would be a lot of fun. Uh, Grayson Johnson was great enough, gracious enough to, uh, record the whole thing and edit it up for us. And we had Matt Steele there as well with a couple of cameras. So we got quite a few nice little camera angles going on. Uh, the whole video is on YouTube. We released it on our strongtowns.org site on the blog. If you just type strong towns talking funny, you will get it. But what I want to share with you today on the audio podcast is the audio version of this YouTube video. Uh, you're going to hear four people, myself, uh, Joe Minicosi, Jason Roberts, and Mike Lydon. I'm not going to be able to obviously break in and tell you which are which, but I, I think you'll get the gist of the conversation. This was a ton of fun. Uh, I'm really happy to be able to share it with you here. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks, everybody, and keep doing what you can to build strong towns. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Taco John's that I always talk about. It's on the way to my daughter's school, and they've always got the special out there. And for the last like three weeks, it's been a flaming hot breakfast Cheeto burrito. Can you imagine? I mean, think about that for for breakfast. So I'll be driving through. I'll be driving by. I'm like, who's up for a Cheeto burrito? Flaming hot on the way in or the way out? (laughs) (laughs) Get that out there. Should we start? I'm just to me. This whole concept of the great inversion, the idea that now all of a sudden we're going to reverse white flight, suburbs, people are going to move into the city, is really simplistic. It's simplistic, and to me it's almost like baby boomer simplistic, like the notion that, well, you know, after World War II we just picked up and moved out to the edge, and now we're just picking up and moving back in. 
And to me, I see so much more complexity in terms of this migration than what that term just captures. Mm -hmm. I, I think you're right, there's a lot of complexity built up um, in that process, but what's interesting to me, because you know, we all travel around a lot, is that I'm seeing the quote-unquote great inversion, as the author Alan Ehrenholt calls it, or coined the phrase, playing out differently everywhere. You know, in a lot of places, it's not happening at all. Right. In some places, as you can go to like downtown Raleigh, right. that's a city that's booming. There's just so much going on with young people and new jobs and tech sector and new investment happening where you can kind of see that starting to take shape. Mm -hmm. um, the question, I think, with the great inversion, at least with the millennial demographic, is how does that play out in the, in the next decade? Right. Now that there's, it's really kind of underway and we don't really know. Um, I think it's interesting though, we're bringing all that suburban stuff like uh, back into the downtown. We're trying to fit it all though. So right. everything that we learned wrong right. and, we're, and there's stuffing in this area and I think- How do we get the drive through downtown? That's yeah. right, yeah. And so it's kind of sad to see, uh, you know, it's it's this hybrid, we're living in this bizarre hybrid time and uh -huh. it's just nothing. I think it's, I think it's a hybrid because we've got so many people our age who grew up in the suburbs and then they, they, want, they want urban living, they want walkability, right. but they still want some of the amenities of suburban living. And so you're getting, you're arguing that. But don't you notice the interesting thing is like this, this, this whole movement for like public-private partnerships to create parking garages. Now. Right. And there's this idea that we don't like transit or we're, we're get upset with public transit because it's easy to pick on because of the cost. But do we not realize that we're just... Now we've given everybody their own personal streetcar, and then all the private will say we will take on like creating our own trolley barns for everybody right. at all of your locations. So, so, so it's just it's an it's interesting kind of interplay because you know look at these old, old pictures and all. You just don't see these. You would I mean if you would have shown people a hundred years ago parking garage facilities that just <laughs> dot downtown. Like, what are these? Especially things? here in Buffalo, what, what are they, they doing? doing? Yeah. yeah, in Buffalo they have twenty-seven football fields of public parking. Right, oh. Joe, is that enough? Yeah, well, uh, I don't know. It can be up to thirty. Well, <laughs> but, you were saying yesterday, you know, you failed when the first floor of your parking garage is empty. Mm. And like walking around here yesterday, it was like all like that. Well, when you, you started earlier with this whole kind of notion of um, it's a simple change in the inversion. Yeah, we, we all see that it's much more complex. I mean, how many times have we been in presentations and somebody asks us for a standard or what's the magic number or right. how, do I, how do I follow a prescriptive formula where well, you guys do this kind of very active and engaged kind of thing. Right. And we keep on searching for these simple solutions to like, a it's very messy. messy world. It's messy. Um, it's Well, and to me, I feel like there's, and I don't want to make this all generational, right. but, but there's, a, there's a certain amount of, you know, we, we're, we're trying to have the drive-through in the downtown because we realize that we need to have more downtown and there's more of a demand for that but yet the people making a lot of the decisions can't visualize a world where they can't drive two blocks to the next place and park out in front of it and I feel like that's a little bit I mean at least when I run into the resistance it's there's a big generational component to it in terms of the, the market desire versus the regulatory framework and the decision making. Right that's the push and pull between the tension gets created between the cities that we want and the cities that get delivered. Right. You know, right. And that's what's really kind of rubbing and driving, I think, a lot of the, the better block tactical urbanism discussion or projects is that people are constantly rubbing up and hitting against that. Right. We had, uh, the mayor came out when he was running to be mayor of Dallas at the time, and he came to our little historic district that we have called the Bishop Arts District. He's like, this place is great, but you know what? The two things it could use, it could use a pot bellies 
This is a place with like 30, 30 local businesses. Yeah, is it, and more parking. And I thought, it's interesting, this place is packed and it's right. working. Right. And the only way we're gonna get more parking in here is if we tear down one of the historic buildings to right. make it, Right. To, so we can fit that parking, but it's going to make it less the place you like in the first yeah. place. You right. can use so, a Dunkin' Donuts and, uh, you know, yeah, because yeah. it's such a hip, cool place. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it's interesting, though, just this, this whole, this counterintuitive idea process that we have to, we have to keep telling people, and I'm a business owner, I own a little restaurant in, in Dallas, and, and I have to tell people as the business owner, no, take away my parking, make this place more irresistible for people, because people will park further. Right. If you create more amenities that give them a, an excuse to walk, so that is the hardest concept for some reason to and, to, and yeah to I think a lot of urbanists use this anecdote how willing are people to park at the very edge of the mall parking lot walk in and then walk for an hour and a half around the mall constantly right right, it, right. But there's this huge cognitive dissonance between the environment and why they're walking and the parking that should be so easy it's like the act of parking has to be made from the possible. I'll go a little meta here for a second yeah get meta. It's a, you know, to some extent, it's it's a, it's the problem of modernism that there's mm -hmm. that you can you can sanitize things down to formulas that you can like, go to the architecture. Let's just strip off everything and abstract the building. Let's if it's a window, it's just a window. It's a box, it's just a box, right? But we have the same process and policy that they want standards and rules and whatever. If you go out Elmwood, this this neighborhood here in Buffalo, it's these houses. We were sitting in the restaurant eating, and then all of a sudden we're just like, hey, wait a minute, this is a little weird. And we realized we were sitting in what used to be the living room. And there was a step down <laughs> going forward. And it was basically what used to be the front porch. They glommed on this, appended this commercial building onto the face of the, the mm -hmm. house. Yeah. And you see this all around Buffalo, yeah. this incremental growth that happened. What was the tipping point at which that neighborhood became too dense? And then all of a sudden, somebody's like, well, there's lots of people walking around. Let's just glom on some commercial. Right. Could you imagine making a zoning code that would allow that? Yeah, yeah, neighborhood? yeah. Neighborhood yeah. People would freak out. Yeah, I was, right. I was doing a presentation last night, and one of the, during the Q&A, somebody from that neighborhood started talking about the fact that there was buildings out of context coming into that neighborhood that were greater than four stories tall. And I was like, dude, have you walked around your own neighborhood? There's right. like 12-story buildings in the middle of your Right, come on. <laughs> so it's, you know, I think this, we've kind of simplified and sanitized all of our processes that, and I, again, going back to that modern movement, I think that we've, it's where yeah. Euclidean zoning comes from. Right, You know, it's right. just, how do we make basic rules and let's just let, that'll be the, we're going to just detach ourselves from creative thought and let right. other things well, Contextual solve thought. Yeah. Right. Well, and the other issue that I hear, and yeah. you guys know this, and what are your thoughts on this? Like, I've, I've, I've been told, we all understand these concepts now, especially through the tactical urbanism, and we want these things, but we just, the banking won't allow us for those, right. those models. I mean, is that the real no, problem? No, it's, I think that that is obviously a huge obstacle. Um, but I kind of look at that too as part and parcel of the, the generational obstacle. Back in the 1940s, 1950s, when we wanted to start building suburbia, we just, we did it. And when the rules got in the way, we changed the rules. And when the financing wasn't adequate, we changed the financing. Today, uh, we have all these things in place that a certain you know, strata of our society is kind of set up to benefit from, uh, operate within, it's a system that they're comfortable with because there's a certain, you know, amount of power and wealth that accrues within that system. Uh, so changing that becomes much, much harder. And I almost feel like we've got to get the finance 
more local mm -hmm. before some of those larger systematic changes will occur. In, in that way, it's remarkable how much redevelopment, neighborhood activation oh, has occurred in spite yeah, of the system right. that's in, right. in making a barrier of that. Yeah. But you look at these old buildings in and around Buffalo, they weren't built with a pension fund out of California. Right. You know, how do they build, have that right. wealth? The guarantee building is worth $26 million an acre right. of value, and it's been here since 1896. Yeah. You know, it's, it's unbelievable potency in this stuff, but um, right. the, the financing industry, I mean, it has its own dumbness to it, too, that and I worked in real estate finance and sit there with the asset managers and show them two buildings and say, this is a class A office building in Topeka, this is a class A office building in Tacoma, and they were the same damn building just dropped in two different suburbs, yeah. and they were actually performing really poorly, but for, for them, it was a class A, it met they, all their standard of what they thought a class A building They was. could fit it into, and this is kind of the, 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 the dumb finance problem we have right now is that if you can fit it into an asset class, you can bundle it, securitize it, sell it off on a secondary market and generate all kinds of liquidity, all kinds of, of money for it. They're not high returning transactions. Right. You know, they're not transactions that hold their value. They're not even transactions that pay for the developer. Ultimately. They're not even plugged in and rooted into the community. Right. I mean, you're talking about entrepreneurial building and grassroots, mm -hmm. people that aren't gonna leave. You're not gonna pick up your restaurant and move to your Same pot belly, you. right? That's right, exactly. Right. <laughs> pot belly, yeah. Yeah. You so know, you're rooted at this point, right? But the way it's financed kind of lends itself to that more transactional. But that's what's so exciting about what's happening in urbanism and entrepreneurship today is that we're figuring out ways, not at the massive national, you know, asset level, class level, to figure this out, funding these projects, but mm -hmm. at the neighborhood level, we've got crowdfunding and resourcing tools, whether it's IOBI or Brickstarter or whatever, that's figuring out how to match the capital to the entrepreneurs to really activate the smaller buildings to get this stuff going again. And I don't know how that continues to scale and how far it goes until it really rubs up against a scale issue, but I think it's really interesting that it's happening. People are working on a different model to just ignore that system. Right. That system doesn't work for them. Right. Well, I mean, yeah, it's born out of necessity. It's this, it's this innovation that comes from the shared economy now that we actually have more options because we can share. I think, you know, I told an anecdote I, you guys may have heard earlier today in our session about, I thought it was amazing, you know, the story of Napoleon, whenever he was brought to the Isle of Elba, the first time, he was exiled twice. The right. first island he was sent to, though, he was given sovereignty over this island of 12,000 people. And so you give a guy who was an emperor a sovereignty of an island, what he does is he, he organizes them, he, he gets the iron mining going again, gets their yeah. resources happening, he yeah. fixes the education system, and, and fixes the farming methods, and then he creates an army and a navy, and he gets himself off the island to become right. emperor of France again. Right. So it's like, like organizing these resources around you in your community in order to like make great things. I mean, and that's what I think is fascinating about all these movements we're talking about. It doesn't take a lot of people, but that's what I think is the next movement is this, how do we identify what we have, the broken systems in our places, mm -hmm. and reutilize them and put them basically into use, into getting us off the island, then back into like a productive right. society. Again. More George. More George, yeah. yeah. How much of this is a big, a big government, little government thing? Because so often we try to, you know, we, we have people contact strong towns and try to draw us into uh, this, you know, left-right government debate, paradigm right. debate we're having today. And I just reflexively, like, don't see the world in that way anymore. Right, right. I kind of see it as, you know, good government and, and, you know, government that isn't as helpful. Sure. And, you know, at the local level, I feel like there's a lot of things that don't work, but there's a lot of things that 
that do and that you can make some changes there. Right. So that's that's complexity, right? Right. That, so right. You're, you're willing to engage complexity, whereas most people want to think big, small, left, right, right. in those paradigms. Mm -hmm. And that's what's very challenging about having real discussions about how do you reform systems and government. Yeah, are you for more government or less? Right. Better government. Yeah. Just better yeah, yeah, government. Yeah. We're not going to get rid of government. We <laughs> want better right. government. Right. And I think where better government works really well, too, I found even with our streetcar project, we were told if we wanted a streetcar, it takes years and takes, you know, three times as much money as we actually ended up needing for our project. Mm -hmm. They got really innovative and we gave them this like, oh, you got, you got three years to get this done because we have these federal dollars coming in or else the money goes away. And it was amazing how efficient they got and how they just started stripping away their own bureaucracy. Yeah. And you compare this to like a military, right. how we are in the army, right. like Patton, he goes in and he says in World War II, like, look, I gotta get across this river here yeah. and, and I'm gonna do it like in two days regardless. Right. And, they're, and they're like, well, we don't have time to kind of sit and contemplate yeah. and come up with how are the funding mechanisms, how's right. it work? It's like, I'm getting over there. You do it. Right. Yeah, we're getting over, yeah. And, and if yeah. somebody came up and, said, and, and gave him a process heavy thing, he'd be like, fire that guy, right. give me somebody who can do this. Right. Yeah, and that's what happens with the government. It can get efficient, I think, mm -hmm. whenever you give it these short deadlines and tell it to act. Well, right. sometimes right. they just fear fear change. They haven't tried something different. They're, they're like, oh, well, we've got this process. We've got to fit our other process on this process. It's like, why is that necessary? Why but these places, I mean, this was amazing to me, are on like life support. So right. Like, right. Yeah. Yeah. right. Your system's not working so well. So. Yeah. yeah so well, it, Andrew Brotherson had a, a great insight to me. He talked about government, how when businesses are starved for resources, they cut staff and they keep programs. And when governments become starved for resources, they cut programs and they keep staff. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me like today, I mean, and I, I, I know a lot of people that work with government. They're wonderful people. They work hard. They're conscientious. I, I really don't think you have, you know, the, the, the lazy government employees. I mean, I, I've not run into them. Not in any greater numbers than you run into in private sure, sure, absolutely. But what you have is a, a system that is kind of calcified. And it almost takes the patent to stand up and say, damn it, we're going over this river. Right. Yeah. To like break the break all that loose. That's the lesson of Jeanette Siddiq Khan in New York City. Yeah. She was our patent. She came in and said, This is BS, the system's not working for us. We need to innovate on our streets. And she was able to figure that out. And yeah. I think that's what I mean, you're not gonna get a Jeanette said at Con in every single city, but that does help when that leadership is there to direct that action. Because right. then everyone else will just fall into line. Right. Yeah, an individual can make a difference. Big difference. In a, in a community. This Nancy Graham in West Palm Beach, Joe Riley in Charleston. Absolutely. These individuals. Um, it is kind of rare, unfortunately. You all, sometimes in government, you also see these fits and misfits. Right. They're good people, but in a totally wrong location. Right. So they're taking their fear because they're really not trained in this practice to understand this stuff. So they freak out. They don't want to have the risk of their neck on the chopping block. Right. And that's, that's hard. I mean, think that I always throw the number of the value of cities. You know, Buffalo's worth $6 billion or something like that. So that's like, there's seven times the Buffalo Bills value. Right. You know, and so I do that just to kind of get them in the mindset of understanding, yes, this is complex. These are complex systems. A billion dollars for the town of Niagara Falls is a huge number. It's a lot of money. So how do you manage that? You know, this is a complex thing, but you've got to get into it creatively, willingly, mm -hmm. to uncover this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. How can we make that? How can we make those cities work more? That's right. a big question. Right. But you imagine right. going to a going? I mean, I just to throw the finance board out there, but just to go out as a as an investor, like your restaurant. Oh, I don't want to make more money in the future. Sure. I just want to just keep the course. Yeah. Right. You know, it's like no, you want to sell more. Well, you want to give your employees a raise. You want to do things. Not only that, but run your restaurant not knowing how much the the building is worth, yeah. 
how much your staff is actually, you know, going to get paid, what it costs to prepare a meal, <laughs> you, you know, how many meals you've committed to do. It's in, I look at like people who invest in government bonds and I'm like, I, I could never buy a government bond. I just, I look at like the, even if they have this great track record of always being paid, it's always being paid because the tide has been rising, mm -hmm. not because there's any sound finance behind any of it, because it's insane, it's well, really crazy. The work that you guys have brought to my attention the last three years has been exactly that, how mm -hmm. we've been really behind the wheel, not just asleep for 40 years, but yeah. I knew that part, right. but blind too. You know, the fact that we haven't really woken up and seen Totally. What are the results of our systems and actually measured we, that? We've been so rich, we haven't had to ask the question. Unbelievable. Well, it's funny because I had lunch with our city manager in Dallas the other day, and, and he knows nothing about urbanism or anything, uh, but he's realizing just by looking at the numbers now, since we annex so much of our city and things like that, he's like, I can't keep paying for these streets anymore. He's like, I'm going to, and he, he said publicly, I need to start selling off streets. Right. So he's coming to this equation <laughs> naturally on his own. And he said he, he took a I trip. I thought streets made us wealthy. Yeah. yeah. He went to Austria recently and he's like, the three to four story building is, is ideal. He started talking about how that works and how well it works. Yeah. It's, it was, that's what's curious to me though. Why? You know, as and then especially in my community in Dallas, where, you know, we tout this business friendly right. kind of initiative. Why haven't, why has that not translated into the ethos of kind of the, right. the the business community or just kind of the overall? Why is that? You know, why is Portland, which looks like you know, you I would think would be the Bohemian Central, more of an innovator on the business side right. of the equation? I think than in places like Dallas. In Memphis, I had a chance to meet with the Chamber of Commerce. I can't remember what they called themselves. It was some group. Champion Circle. Cha yeah, and everyone in there had given a huge amount of money to this thing uh, to drive changes in innovation in Memphis. And I went and met with them and it was like the first time that I was with a chamber group where they actually got it, where it got beyond how do we subsidize the next business to come here, how do we build the next freeway interchange, how do we follow in the, the paradigm. And it was at one hand uh, invigorating because you saw people get it, on the other hand it was really scary because you realize this is every community in the country it has like their merchant class, which is you know our version of the merchant class, which a hundred years ago used to be the curmudgeonly old guys going, we don't want to build that waterworks, you know, because then we'll have, you know, we don't have the money, right? Mm -hmm. And now they are uh, you know a completely different ethos, a completely different mindset. Mm -hmm. I do think that there's a lot of change that needs to come from that strata of leaders in our community. Well, they just need it. They're, they're um, I hate the word, you use the word legitimize, but they can legitimize action. They can remove the risk because there's a lot of people that work in government. That's been their only job is working in government. Right. How the private sector operates is kind of freaky to them. Right. You know, so not, not to overly cartoon it, but it's just, I've, I've worked in both government and um, private sector and I've just seen it on both sides of the fence. Right. People in the private sector is like, oh, is government always getting away? Right. And, and then you just ask them, have you ever worked in government? I mean, I, I was accused of destroying people's lives every single day on the job. I yeah. can't imagine poor people in, in <laughs> working government have a hard job, but it's... Right, the, I think the challenge is that when you're working in government, whether you are, you know, 22 and you just get hired, or you're 62 and about to retire, let's be honest, 72 and about to retire now. Right, right. Um, you're working within the, the weight of a system yeah. that was designed for another era, right? Right. So how right. can we take even just one piece of that, let's just call it the planning department, 
and get that queued up to deal with a new era and a new challenge and new issues that we all see every day as private citizens, that either new ideas, new innovations, new you know products, new whatever it might be, right. that is changing how we live our lives daily, and yet we have a system that largely was put into place in what, 1941 in Dallas is when your zoning's from, you know, LA is just updating their zoning from 70 years ago, mm-hmm. Philadelphia just did, like on down the line, you see major American cities right. are being managed and the growth is being, you know, created through a system from, you know, the Beaver era. Actually, that's a great point. And you think about what form-based code is a word kind of reared its head in the 90s. Yeah. And here it is commonplace for cities to just say, okay, let's just take our zoning code and just yeah, do yeah, something different yeah. with it. So it, there is a success there, a success story to, to honor that that's, governments can change. Pretty significant stuff. Take their whole operating system and go, we're going to go from... DOS to, to Apple, like just right. new computer, and right. you know, not to say that that's a panacea, but at least it shows you that governments can change their skeleton. You know? I hadn't heard that number. Did you hear that Tommy said today? I thought was fascinating that cities are in Memphis, at least specifically, to get these big em- uh, employers in, are spending what one hundred fifty thousand dollars per job, job. Yeah. that comes in. Oh yeah, and, and so you know, our yeah, metric easy. there is, is, yeah. is job growth for cities. Like right. why? Why have we not figured that out? Yeah, job growth is such a bizarre. To me, it's like a, a metric of desperation because you know, you're, in an ideal system, you've got a productive place that is churning along, creating jobs, indifferent to what the local government is doing. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like a, like a really good place creates jobs. A really successful economy distributes wealth naturally, yeah. right? Because there's opportunities being created and and, and things. And to me, the whole dysfunction of the fact that you have to spend 150000 to get a job, that we have these huge gaps in wealth and income, is a byproduct of the fact that the macro economy just doesn't, you sure. know, it doesn't work. And at the city level, you might be able to look at national metrics, GDP growth, unemployment, what have you, but when you get down into the trenches in the local level, you can see how it just is dysfunctional, it's just distorted. And I think it's fascinating too, is just that, that you know, this, I guess we talk about this economic gardening model, is that's what cities are looking at now, or, or thinking about now, as opposed to economic harvesting. Because when I sit into these, these meetings, talking to people about what do you want in your community, you won't believe how often I'll hear, like, we want a Chipotle. And I'll, and I'll sit there and think, how hard is it to a make chip, a, a Chipotle? Is, and yeah, how hard is it to make a burrito? And like, yeah. we have enough unemployed people or creative people in this community that we can probably assemble a burrito together and potentially compete with Chipotle in a better right. model. Right. So it's not the thing is, but we would actually, as a city, say, well, this is what you want as a community. We'll get on airplanes right. with our people. Well, I'll go try to find incentives to right. bring them out here, and then they'll drop in their you know their prepackaged Same thing, model, yeah. as opposed to what we're saying is like actually spend maybe a tenth of that right. locally and do a pop-up yeah. for six weeks and just see if this burritos work here. Right, and, right. And, and you know, in the okay. end, you might have a Dunkin', local. Dunkin' Donuts. We don't have Dunkin' Donuts in Minnesota, right? They're now opening 50 stores statewide. Front page of the newspaper, right. the statewide newspaper. It was like a huge deal. I started looking into this. You know, donut shops are something that you, when you think about a local entrepreneur filling a gap, a donut shop should be a pretty basic thing to start up, right? You, you, I mean, you got a deep fryer, you got some whatever, and it's, I mean, it's not like a high overhead kind of business, right? To start a Dunkin' Donuts, you have to have a half million dollar net worth and $250,000 of liquid net worth in order to a, a, apply to have a, a franchise. You wonder why we have this gap 
between you know income classes because we have taken the entrepreneur, the person who could have started the donut shop 50 years ago and now said, your highest aspiration is to be the night manager at the Dunkin' Donuts. Mm-hmm. All that wealth is going to be mined sucked and out. sucked out of the community. Totally. Yeah. And all you're there to do is just basically fulfill that franchisee model. Right. When you show uh, your, your picture of Brainerd in the early 1900s, right. it's an incredible yeah. environment of activity and three or four stories, like all the new buildings are there mm-hmm. and you don't have one Chipotle or one Dunkin' no, Donuts. No. You know, the wealth is being circulated within the community, right. not being exported out. And so that's an interesting thing that we're seeing now though with these chains and all coming into their bombarding these areas that do start to kind of get fixed. And, right. it, and they, right. they end up suffocating the place eventually right. on, on its own. So that's where right. I think that the Downtown need for DC. that quality of public space is needed because that way you can actually program these areas and we're having this battle where people where, where at least in my community where they're saying you know we don't need public spaces because it's it's too costly and nobody supports them let's just sell it over to the private and of course the private's going to take it and we're going to get our Dunkin' Donuts out of right, it right. And, and that has its own series of issues that, that, that we face with but the, the interesting thing about public spaces is there's an opportunity for us to continue to innovate small with little tiny pop-ups and things like that and so it's sad for me to see this reclamation of all these areas and just kind of being given over right well there's, right. there's a lesson right. in the urban design and all of this you know that that i mean i'll use miami as the example that um coconut grove miami beach and coral gables blew up went crazy you know back when i went to school there they were kind of edgy a little bit now they're the highest priced stuff. There's chains have moved into everything, right. and it's because of the lack of other types of physical environments that are like that. Exactly. You know, if all of Miami were designed like those three places, the entrepreneurs can still move around. If they're priced out of one district with a square and a public space and all that stuff, they just go to the next one. We're seeing that in Nashville. Downtown's too explosive. So the other neighborhoods, the fabric is still there. They're just moving into those areas, and the entrepreneurs are still able to get the low rents because we've got supply. This town's a perfect example here right. in Buffalo. There's right, right. plenty of real estate to move into. Right. But the, the problem that they have is everybody just keeps on moving onto the one spine of Elmwood Street. So how do you replicate that in the less well-off neighborhoods that still have the entrepreneurial spirit? They just don't have the density. And the problem with Buffalo is they blew out too much of their real estate. Right. At least you, these you, folks are conscious of the mistakes. You see that in hyper speed, warp speed in Manhattan and now in Brooklyn and, and elsewhere in New York City. But the thing that saves the metropolitan region from the the hyper gentrification is they've got such a massive supply of walkable urbanism on train lines that people just want to be a part of. They want to invest in. If they can't afford, you know, neighborhood A, they can go to neighborhood D, and that neighborhood is already kind of turned on and happening, and already the prices are lower. So they have you have options. I mean, I don't know what we do in fifty years, but you know, at least there's the supply is there. And a lot of smaller cities and smaller towns, when those few neighborhoods get activated and done, they get you know, bought up by the chains, right. oftentimes there's nowhere else that's to it. go. Yeah, that's it. You know, and oftentimes there's neighborhoods, and I find this a lot in the, in the work that we do in different places, is that the neighborhood that gets switched on becomes this really active area. In fact, we were just working in Oklahoma City, and there's basically two neighborhoods that have been switched back on that are really active now. And all the locals and people who help generate all that activity are now upset because everybody from outside the region drives in yeah. on a Saturday night right. and takes over, this would takes over the neighborhood. This would take over the neighborhood. But they don't have anywhere else to go. There's well, no other so, walk away. Right. Have you guys heard that? There's a great Warren Buffett quote about the cycle of good ideas. And he said this happens, and this guy's you know, 80 years old, the Oracle of Omaha, and he says, this happens in every good idea. It starts with innovation, innovators, right. then you get imitators, and then idiots in the end. <laughs> yeah. and, 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 and so that's truly what we're seeing in these places. It's just like we yeah. all, 
And like you said, that's the answer to the gentrification question, I think, as well. Like when people say, well, we should, should you stop doing these things? Like, no, you need thousands of these places. Mm -hmm. So we have, so yeah, it's, it's a supply and demand issue. Right, let's, right. let's lower that, uh, uh, you know, the demand or uh, raise the supply at least. But then you get back to our financing, you know, regulatory structures, both government and, and private sides, and you realize that how that does not align yeah, right. at all with the kinds of places we need to create. And so the places that we do create wind up being so expensive. Right. You know, yeah. an affordable housing unit in San Francisco or Brooklyn's heroic. I get it. Right. You know, but the demand is so strong to be in those places. Mm -hmm. um, it's really. It's and that's what I. I mean, I. I hear that like the gentrification argument, and to me, gentrification is almost like you know the the necessary evil in many cases of doing things well. And I've always felt like the answer is just do more great places well. Like why have just one place that works? Why not export this to every neighborhood? and essentially meet that demand. I mean, but I think the, the reality of doing that is that if you don't have that physical fabric and it hasn't been there for 50, 60, 70 yeah. years, we only have so many places intact right. that are like that. So right. to create a whole cloth is to get a whole new neighborhood, call it new urbanism, right. and that has a value and it can be much better than alternatives, but it still doesn't feel like no, totally. the stuff that has the patina and the age and the authenticity. Right. So right. it's. You know, we, we can only deliver the answer at the scale of 80 acres, you know, and right. that's that's a problem because when we delivered these neighborhoods historically, we did the scale of you know eight lots, right? A lot, you yeah, know, yeah, at a time as opposed yeah. to eight, you know 100 acres at a time, right? And that's a different developer. A lot different kind of. It's a different yeah. developer. It's a different financing model. It's a different local regulatory model. Right. I mean, this is where I see like all of these, all of these different places. I love seeing you. Because CNU is a gathering of all these different people pushing on the same wall, right? Mm -hmm. When I look back at the whole suburban experiment, the whole post-World War II, uh, you know, emptying out of the cities, there was no patent, there was no like centralized organizing force that lined all these places up. They just all lined up. Mm -hmm. And I'm waiting for that coalesce, you know, all these coalesce and just push on the wall at the same time in the same place and bust through it. Because yeah. there, there's all these different hurdles and obstacles we've got to overcome and all these different interests that I think are like desiring to do that. Now, I think our, here's the opportunity and the possibility for us too though. I was in Munich speaking and, uh, and they of course already had great form and great buildings and great public spaces. Uh, but when they heard me speak and they talked, their problem is now they have uh, uh, issues with community engagement, some of the things we face too. But, after they saw some of the projects we were doing and some of the other projects going around the nation, they were like, the U.S. will actually take this, and you'll see dramatic change probably in 10 or 20 years. I mean, we're thinking 100 years, but right. it's amazing how fast as a nation I think that we do take an idea and, and rapidly, you know, in 10 years, like, like I said, nobody was talking about Portland right. in 1985, but, right. you know, 20 years later, it's like, Portland's the thing. Right. Portland, right. And they said, think about China, right? They said China will take 100 years to come out of the dark ages, and, right. and you know, they pretty much make everything we have. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's true. What do you tell a group in Munich? Because, I, I mean, I've seen you go over there, yeah, yeah. and I'm like, how do you, you know, the, it, it, because in a sense, if you, you've all, I mean, everybody here has been overseas, what we look at is like great, yeah. Like the Bishop Arts District, such an awesome place. Yeah. It would be such a nondescript 
Oh, thing yeah, yeah. over there. Like it would be like, oh yeah, that's the. It's interesting. From when I was, that's, I said the same thing. Like, what? Why am I here? And they're like, they're their problems. They're like, well, you know, our government pays, gives us money for anything we want to do. I'm like, well, what are you complaining about? And, but they said that their problem is they they lack innovation. They yeah. lack yeah. they lack come uh, you know people coming in and pushing the boundaries. So I feel like, and I know this is the case in Canada and in Australia. I was brought out. Really, because the staff was like, we want ideas, we want things to happen, like yeah. rabble rouse, like yeah. go ahead. In fact, one of the questions people, somebody asked in Australia, they were upset after I spoke. They're like, well, what is the government going to do to to sanction more of this guerrilla activities like he was talking about? I was like, government sanctioned guerrilla activities? <laughs> right. that, what is that? <laughs> the government sanctioned revolutionary? That's yeah. right, yeah. <laughs> I, was in, yeah. I was just in Guelph with, uh, with Andrew, same uh, thing. We did the Urban Design Conference and it was... They, they had that same attitude, and I was just like, wow, this is different. Yeah. You know, how do you process this and make a policy to do this? But in the context of watching the whole entire conference, it all started to make sense for me. Uh -huh. um, and there was this urban designer from Toronto that gets up and really proudly shows a drawing. This is the drawing we drew of the urban design and the fact of huge buildings, big public yeah. space. And then he follows it with a picture, and it's the exact same thing. It's just one's real and one's a drawing. Okay. And he's like, look at how close the real thing is what we drew. And I'm just like, wow, that's pretty crazy. Yeah. Um, but it's just this total different engagement, engaged mindset. Right. And then what, I think you know what happens is the community gets complacent in that. That, that they're just like, well, they're, oh, they're yeah. going to solve the problem or whatever. Yeah, um, sure, sure. But there, there's still entrepreneurial activity. It's just not as crazy. And I think that's maybe just a cultural thing that that we're a much more engaged country that way that we. Are a full contact community people right. yell at you at a meeting. Well, I think a lot of places are successful neighborhoods. Um, you know, we've worked in Somerville and Davis Square is like this incredible, you know, transit-oriented on this red line neighborhood that you know has really been become this great neighborhood over the last say 30 years, uh, larger than the last 15. And for them, it's not so much like there's little tweaks around small parking lots that can become buildings and things like that. It's already a great place, but it's about getting the process right. And the engagement right. So what they're finding is that they don't want any of those little parking lots to become buildings because the neighborhood doesn't want the change now. Right. So in those places, it is about innovation and yeah. process, not about innovation and urbanism because they got the urbanism already. Mm -hmm. How do you get them to plug back in right. or to show there's a wider voice of people who do want more of that infill development, more affordable housing, more things like that? That's where the in those places. That's where the Fab Lab movement I think really excites me. That's the, the have you seen the Fab Labs? No, I haven't. So is, Fab Labs are basically taking people taking these warehouses and making fabrication laboratories. Okay. So imagine your your library is changing to these resource centers with 3D printers, yeah, yeah. CNC routers. The kids in school know SketchUp and all these tools, so they can go free. in. Yeah, they're free, and you can go in, and, and, and this is what I, my my dream is that we have our students going in and fixing their their environments around them, like yeah. giving them a few kind of basic tenets of what we've talked about, and saying. Here, go ahead and take a weekend and build a couple of these things out. You've seen with the CNC routers, so I mean, we're we're just now starting to using one project. But Tommy talked about they take one sheet of plywood and you can make eight legs for chairs real fast, cut them out, and they have teams assembling them. He said in two days they had eighty chairs, forty chairs, forty chairs. So I mean. That's just kind of instant kind of beer garden, basically. Right. That's like four X that we can deliver just with our normal methodologies of pallet the chair. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and, and that's yeah, a great education tool for the community. This is what I, Mike and I've talked a little bit about too. It's, 
it, it, it's what's been fun for me now through the success of like the TED Talk and other things that I had going on was that I'm getting put in front of audiences that aren't urbanists now, right? In architects, and you probably are as totally, well. Yeah. And it's so yeah. fun because they get so excited yeah. about what's going. Like you guys are just doing this stuff. Well, what is this? What is it? walkability and right. form? What are you talking about? So I'm talking to like kids at drug prevention groups in Washington, and then facility management associations in DC, and I'm, and kind of just. I'm, I'm changing my message a bit, kind of talking about how you can use this idea of instant activation to, to, to ideate a bit. But it's also it's relaying the message of this overall, we need to fix our places together. And they're all coming back, becoming kind of urbanists, you know, after these, these right. presentations. So right. it's been great. Well, that's, to me, that's the thing about what you, you two do. That because it's incredible. Yeah, we're, we're just we're, in awe of it. Well, and also, I think that when you talk about the audiences, I think that people get excited with you guys. Yeah, they tend to get their minds melted. With yeah, yeah, they're kind, yeah, of, they're kind of stun them a little bit. Like yeah, they're just like, whoa, wait a minute, what the hell just happened? Right, and, right. And as, as I see in presentations where I literally have to stop because I'm looking in the audience and they're just jogging. You went too far. Oh yeah, I was too far. I was in Australia and I was presenting, and, and <laughs> I was presenting with all of these kind of architects and people studying sociology, PhDs, and I feel like, oh gosh, I'm the idiot in the room. Yeah, I'm totally. Right. No one's gonna like listen to me. But people were falling asleep because they saw all these PowerPoints with just nothing but numbers and yeah. bullet points yeah. and things yeah. like that, which is fine. You can have a few of those, but people can really get fatigued fast. They yeah. want, I mean, yeah. like you, you saw the reason you kind of started this effort. People were asking you, like, what's the solution? Chuck, right. you depressed us right, exactly. completely. <laughs> we <laughs> we all want to go What do we do? And so you're like, there are people jump off the trying bridge, to fix yeah. things yeah. here. Yeah. And that's what we found even with our work. It's like... You know, we don't know what the solution is, but here's a little thing we found. Right. Right. Something's happening. Right. You know, I think yeah. so much of the thing about growing up in education, and there was still some like industrial design, you know, education available at my high school. But that was like, if you were a kid who was like maybe not going to college, you were right you, there. You would have shop. Well, we call it shop, yeah, shop class. class. Right. Yeah. So shop class, I feel like I can't believe I didn't take shop class because the only reason yeah. I have any skills to do yeah. anything that we do in our projects yeah. is because I was on a construction crew for about three summers. Yeah. But you know, in college, so I grew up on a farm and then, like you learned to do all that stuff. But you go hang out like no, I don't. But if you grow up out of the places, to yeah. suburbia or cities, yeah. like you don't get the no, skill set anymore. They cut those kinds of classes and programs. Right. And even if you had them, maybe you didn't take them growing up. Right. <laughs> well, the amazing thing is that we do have in my neighborhood the shop classes we have are auto shop classes. Oh, so, so that's okay. what our kind of our next so kind of idea is like: how do we use the auto shop classes? To like start, you know, using the same tools to start fixing the environment. Yeah, so because we're still focusing now. You talking about fixing cars? Fixing cars. Yeah. yeah, that's hilarious. Yeah, yeah. We do. We have. A, we had at my high school the the shop class where they would um, build the suburban ranch house and the, the garage and then move that out to someone's place. Yeah, I would love to like repurpose that to build right. like you know good good houses that could be added on to over time that we could put on some of the. The vacant lots in town, you know, and that's there's... why this Fab Lab movement is the, is, the maker yeah. movement is so exciting because it, you yeah. know it's not going to grip you know eight percent of you know kids who are under twenty right now, but if you get ten percent of them keyed into this, like that could be really impactful. Then go apply those skill sets mm -hmm. to communities as opposed to fixing cars. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just drop off a shipping container in these, these auto shop classes like a, like a Fab Lab. Right. Just so like, hey, go ahead and fix it, do it, and then we'll drop it off and edge it on the street and watch. Let's put a pop up business in and just kind of see what happens right. with this as well. Right. So I think that's. I think we're on the edge of seeing that happen. I know in our projects we're trying to, we're actually getting there by default because because we, 
you know, uh, Mike and I have the Somerville project, and we're, we have an Atlanta project coming up, but we've started rolling out classes now right. for people because just out of necessity, because I was, I was like, how do I get these things done? I need for this block, I need right. parklets, I need benches, I need these. It's like if I do a class, people can come in, they can build these things for me, they can put it out in the street. But I need people to pick it up too and say, hey, the next day, take your chair home with you. Right. <laughs> so, right. We'll also learn the skills so that you're building capacity in the community that you work with. You're not just doing it. You know, it's there. It actually feel learning these skills has to do it later. As there well. are community colleges doing that. There are places that do that. Mm -hmm. They tend to focus on the human resource, and I think that's a brilliant idea because it focuses on a, on a physical resource as well. Right. Like in our, the community college in, in Asheville, um, in our county, they have this incredible culinary and beer program. Mm -hmm. So the result of that is we have great restaurants, six, sixteen breweries, breweries yeah. and and seventy restaurants downtown. It's unbelievable for a town of eighty thousand people. Right. right. You know because. As, as an entrepreneur, you can go and find talent that can actually make good food. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I realize that when I leave my community and go someplace else, and I'm like, what do you mean you don't have breweries here? What do you mean you don't right. have restaurants? Right. Um, but, but creating that, starting with that human resource, but then coupling that with the physical resource right. as well. Put those pieces together. Well, I also wonder too, though, is there, you know, maybe the open source movement is the opportunity here, but, it, it, but it's like, like the Dunkin' Donuts model. 90% of these chains basically have this back-end stuff. Right. That, that's what you're paying for. It's like kind of the automation of like, totally. the, yeah, the POS yeah. systems, getting yeah. the deliveries there and all. Mm -hmm. Why haven't we, I mean, and maybe that's the next, the future is the shared economy or figuring this out to automate the 90% of the stuff that everybody doesn't do well because, right. because they want to do the stuff they love. They want right. to create the food. Yeah. Right. And, and, and so is, is that the next movement or? It's interesting because the economic gardening model uh, is focused a lot on that. You know, you're an entrepreneur, and it's a little bit bigger. You know, they, they wouldn't get into the donut shop, but they would get into the kind of the fast-growing, maybe like the tech business. And what they've realized is that the people who are creating the, the most jobs, the people who are in these innovative places, the people that are exporting things out of the community and importing capital mm -hmm. that then can get passed around, mm -hmm. the problems that they have growing jobs are not how do we do what we're good at and passionate at it's how do we do hr how do we do market research how do we identify where we can sell our products and what our competitors are doing those are the things that actually for a local government are fairly easy to do yeah. if you can get someone with those skill sets in and you can benefit businesses all over the place mm -hmm. and let them focus on the key things that they need to do. So it could be a huge market for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's fascinating. Well, I, you wonder why Chamber of Commerce don't take on that more. Like, I, we'll help run your back end for you. I really you feel like the, I think the Chambers could. I really feel like uh, the Main Street program, uh, there's a niche for them there. Mm, yeah, They've really been, you know, the Main Street program has historically been about kind of pushing back on the malls. You know, we got malls and, and so we're going to have a downtown and we'll have festivals and, uh, you know, different things to get people downtown. Right. Well, the whole mall thing is, you know, on the decline. It's a, it's a, it's, it, that is a beast that's been slayed in a sense. And I think like a repurposed Main Street organization, because it, it's not economic gardening. Economic gardening is working with these stage two companies, these larger, these exporters. But there's a need to come in and help the person who wants to open the burrito place. Right. How do you, your, well, look what we found yeah, out. How do you get that started? And it's, it's not like SBA, you know, it's not like the community college teaching you a 101 accounting class. It's literally like, how do we free you up? That's yeah, that's, well, that's what we figured out with MemShop. And yeah, talking yeah, to yeah MemShop about is a great This example. morning is that literally the barrier between small entrepreneurs and vacant buildings was about $5,000. Right. You 
give that sort of leniency or grant or break to the entrepreneur, get them to set up, get them inside, and then yeah. you give them the back end skills of basic training and marketing and pricing and those sorts of pieces. Yeah. It's incredible. They had 15 and then seven of them stayed and some of them have grown and gone, actually moved out of those spaces mm -hmm. and they've been so successful. Yeah. Like, we can get a 50% retention rate on that kind of stuff for $5,000 of business. That's incredible. Yeah, and we kind of end up working backwards a little bit to the same kind of idea where we find the chef in the community and we say, as a as volunteers, we will help you create all the, you work, create your dishes and we'll see if we can kind of create all the other steps you need in between for the two days. Right, so right. Same kind of idea. And once they kind of figure out like, oh, I've got my nice systems in place. This is so nice. I can make this permanent. It just, it, that's the, that honestly, that's the barrier to entry for a lot of these folks. It's just like the, the, the processes they have to put in place are so burdensome. The company I used to work with, Public Interest Projects, that's what they, that was their model, is essentially provide the, the business apparatus for the small entrepreneurs mm -hmm. that handle the books, look at the trending of your information. If you've got a question about accounting or law or rent or whatever, they were there because they had multiple businesses and properties to work with the entrepreneur on that. But that, that model could be easily right. translated into a, a small town or city's economic right. development department, a yeah. street program. Yeah. Um, it's not look, complex. Companies like Airbnb have figured that out. There's no way I want right. to be exactly. in the innkeeping business of dealing with all those logistics. Deal with transactions, deal with oh my goodness. Know, it's, it's credit It's still cards. a lot of work to do the Airbnb right. management thing, but we're doing it in my house and like, we reap thousands of dollars of benefits because someone figured out this platform that we could just right. use. So we're gone for the weekend. It's like, please <laughs> <laughs> get rid of that. Let me, let me ask a wrap up question. Uh, how much optimism do you have versus pessimism. Mm -hmm. And I know, you know, the four of us tend to be optimistic people, but also run into a lot of burdens all the time, a lot of obstacles. Five years from now, cities in a better place, uh, still struggling. What level of optimism do you have? I'm optimistic. I, th I think that things are changing. I think the, the millennial movement is driving a lot of things. And you're seeing this in the consumer marketplace, the people if the Chipotle does come in, people will vote with their feet. There'll be a class that comes in that follows that, but there'll be a class that moves to a different restaurant or something. So uh, you see this in, in lots of places. It's a dynamic, evolving thing. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just a growing pain that I think we're gonna have to all go through with that process, that people aren't gonna magically fall in love with cities again. There's a reason why they made those choices. And we've kind of embedded that and rewarded that cultural decision financially with large, government investments. Right. So it's just a matter of going through the temper tantrum right. and watching and riding it out. I think that's it's, it's going to be peaks and valleys through this whole thing. Yeah. I'm split in half. I've got optimism <laughs> on on the sense that I think the forum is going to start looking more the way we want it to just out of necessity like the conversation I had with the city manager. Uh, and so we'll get some things like that where I'm pessimistic is I don't see uh, the level of community engagement or ownership like our grandparents generation had the whole bowling alone uh, you know, right. scenario we're dealing with right. you know and you see that with voter turnout and things like that mm -hmm. it's still staying at these dramatically low levels and, and that's ultimately sad to know that you know a hundred years ago we had Kiwanis clubs and, and, and Oddfellows and Masons and, and things like that had their own parades and helped build orphanages and Shriners doing hospitals and you just that isn't coming back, it doesn't seem like. Yeah. And, and I know Robert Putnam's theory there was on a television and air conditioning, and maybe that's what it is, but, <laughs> but I, I wish, I mean, we're definitely, I think some of these processes and maybe the fab labs and the work we're doing is hopefully building up a little bit, but um, I'm just not seeing the levels I, 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 would, I yeah. wish.
CNU should do a little parade at each community. Shriners <laughs> event, get, 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 get a little fezes, and Andreas and a little go-kart ride. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that'd be awesome. <laughs> uh, I would just wrap up and say I'm mostly just an optimistic person, and I see a lot of change happening. Every time I go to a community, there's something innovative, creative, interesting happening, no matter where that is. I get really inspired by that. So I'm seeing that um, at that small scale. But I also see that the benefit of that of those things happening right now are benefiting still just a few, right? right? And right. so there's a lot of things that people are tapping into and scaling up that are beneficial still for a few. So I'm seeing this still the divergence of our culture, whether that's you know being disenfranchised, not voting, or is the challenge of the politics, um, you know, and, and just having these two polar polar uh, sides of the two camps. It's like very difficult to overcome that. Um, and I also see. Back to the great inversion, if I can wrap this up that yeah, way, yeah. is that we're completely unprepared to put people who have the least resources out on the edge as a culture. Totally. If you go and you throw people who have least resources, you know, 30 miles from downtown, um, that's it's so over. You know what? It's you horrible. know what that looks like? That looks like Detroit. Yeah. Because everything left Detroit and all the poor people were left in the core of the city, right? And then to get from if you lived in the city of Detroit to get to where the jobs are in the suburbs, mm-hmm. oh my goodness, unbelievably difficult, expensive, right. and ultimately not possible for a lot of people. Right. We're seeing that now slowly starting to play out, but mm-hmm. now in reverse. And so now we're putting people, at least Detroit has a bus system, mm-hmm. skeleton, but it has a bus system. Right. A lot of the outlying suburban, exurban areas where there's going to be cheap real estate don't. They don't have those resources. doesn't mean they can't, but we've already set them up for failure to make those kinds of systems work. So we don't have the density, we don't have the connectivity, and the infrastructure is going to be so damn expensive to maintain and continue that we can't afford those other things when the people are going to need it. I, I feel like the challenge of our generation is to make sure that we don't leave those people behind mm-hmm. as this changes. Uh, and you can, you, you can look back at white flight and the way, you know, we were, the, the way our society kind of evolved then in the the 20 years and the convulsions that things went through because of the inequities, I do think that the challenge that we face as this whole thing shakes out is that it doesn't empower a select few, but that you know we're able to do it and not leave people behind. And I think that that is, if, if, if I'm optimistic that that change is coming, I'm pessimistic or I'm, I'm you know, worried, concerned, yeah. I'm concerned that we're not up to that challenge. All right. That's a positive. I'll take that. Thanks, guys. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah.
Alrighties, ladies and gentlemen. You it's can't great. be the one who decides why you like something. It doesn't matter. Right. I remember reading one time about Elaine Boozler talking about a bit Letterman did in '75 about toothpaste that he would spit into the sink and he would let it dry and he would serve it as after dinner mints when people would come over. <laughs> it's a stupid joke. And she said, I don't know why, but I think about that joke all the time. Yes. And I think about that joke. Too. Is it a great joke? No, but there's something in that joke. In the same way, there's something in that. Yes. That you can't, that yeah. all, all physical you, evidence yes. to the no. contrary, there's something in there. Yes, but I'll tell you it's the difference is, he's built in the irony the comedian is built in the irony of how mad and disgusting and funny that is. That comedian hasn't built in any irony. We built in the irony. We're laughing because we put irony onto so. it. I know, it's don't a funny joke. So. I don't oh. think so. I really think that we just love that bit. You just love a bit? That's You're funny. Yeah. yeah.